Welcome to Georgia in Play. I'm Leah Fleming. October is a month of history in our state. In 1964, the civil rights leader, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., became the youngest Nobel Peace Prize recipient in history. In 1973, Maynard Jackson was elected mayor of Atlanta, becoming the first black mayor of a major southern city. And that also was the same October that Gladys Knight and the Pips' Midnight Train to Georgia went to number one on the pop singles chart. And on October 10th, 1995, Kendrick Johnson was born to Kenneth and Jacqueline Johnson. KJ, as he was nicknamed, was a 17-year-old teenager who was discovered deceased in a rolled-up gym mat at Lowndes High School on January 11th, 2013. I can't do this. I can't. I cannot do this. Lounge 911, where's your emergency? Yes, I'm calling my son here to come home from school. Kendrick Johnson. You know, she said, have you heard from Kendrick? 12 o'clock, I knew he was dead. The body had been moved. The scene, in my opinion, had been compromised. When they said he climbed inside the bed to get the shoes, I already knew that was a lie. We opened the body. That is the trailer of a 2021 documentary titled Finding Kendrick Johnson. The doc takes a closer look at, into the mysterious death of Kendrick. Investigators ruled his death an accident, but his family and many other people across the country believe he was murdered. Since Kendrick's death, the Johnson family has filed several lawsuits and led many public protests. His body has been exhumed twice, and there have been three autopsies done. The last two concluded that Kendrick's death was caused by blunt force trauma. Federal officials have looked into the case and closed it, saying investigators found insufficient evidence to support federal criminal charges. Last year, Lowndes County Sheriff Ashley Polk officially closed the case. Now we turn to a new development. The family has filed a new billion-dollar civil lawsuit. They filed it in federal court last month. WALB anchor and executive producer Jamie Worsley has been covering the story from Albany. I spoke with her earlier this week, and she said that this move by the family is different. As you mentioned, there have been several um, legal filings and court filings throughout this uh, almost 11-year process now. Uh, but this is the first that we have seen a civil complaint and the first civil complaint that we've seen in federal court uh, filed by the family. There are some things that also stuck out to me about this complaint as far as the, the legal processes behind it. Um, in this case, the family is representing themselves. Um, and I feel like a, a statement that um, Kendrick's mother, Jackie, gave to the reporters that were kind of standing outside after the um, after the filing was complete in federal court in Atlanta. She said that they feel like they have been alone in this, that they're still alone in this, saying, quote, it's painful, it's hurtful, it's a shame. We've had to fight for 10 and a half years. Nobody seems to care about Kendrick. But as I always tell them, they killed the wrong child, but they got the right parents because we're going to continue to fight for Kendrick. So what is the mood around Lowndes County? You um, you grew up around there, you mentioned. What has been the mood? And do people still talk about the death of, of Kendrick? People definitely still talk about the death of Kendrick Johnson. I feel like one of the things that was a really surreal moment for me surrounding this case is, you know, being a teenager. And I remember getting my driver's license and really getting into podcasts. And so I followed a a lot of national true crime podcasts probably should have been a good indicator that I was going to be a journalist one day, but it wasn't. I didn't know that I was going to do this. And I remember riding down the road one day and one of the national podcasts I had followed forever 
did an episode on the Kendrick Johnson case. And for me, I literally remember thinking, I knew this story was big. I didn't realize it was that big. Um, And so I think the true crime world has really kind of uh, brought this case to a national spotlight. And I feel like everyone has their idea of what happened to Kendrick Johnson. And unfortunately for the family, you know, they don't really have a clear idea of what happened. And I feel like everyone kind of has their theories and their conspiracies, but the family deserves to know. And um, I feel like the the investigations to this point have all, you know, kind of led back to the same uh, conclusion, but the family, you know, disagrees. And as a parent, I totally understand that prerogative. So I think since becoming a parent, this case has also kind of changed for me. Um, I have a 10-month-old daughter and you know, it, it does pull at your heartstrings as a parent. And so regardless, I feel like the, the mood around this is everybody just wants answers and wants to know what's going on. And so um, maybe one day we'll see the gag order come off those files and we'll know a little bit more specifically. Um, and maybe one day the jury will, you know, finally bring this to a close if the complaint makes it that far. Jamie Worsley is an anchor and executive producer at WALB-TV in Albany. Thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. And thank you for giving me a a chance to dig into this case again. It's been a minute since our special, so this was a good refresher for me as well. Joining us now from Valdosta is Kenneth Johnson, the father of the late Kendrick Johnson. So you have um, filed this federal civil lawsuit against the GBI and Lowndes County uh, Sheriff, Mr. Johnson. Uh, Tell us about that. We brought a lawsuit because one thing about law officials, they cannot file anything to make their statements true. So what they essentially done is take uh, the sheriff department, in this instance. Mm -hmm. He went on a government document and made a filing of things not true about Kendrick, the GBI, the, the uh, their um, report. Mm-hmm. Their report is not true. They essentially look like they agreed. They, they agreed upon the same things and wrote similar or the same filings. One thing a government official cannot do is lie in their filings. In this instance, they said there wasn't any bruises a trauma to Kendra's body, and that is just not true. Uh, no matter, you know, they can't just make filings and file documents to make their statement true, and this is essentially what they've done. Okay. I know that also that that uh, you say that there were some uh, false statements about um, his shoes, his gym shoes? His gym shoes. There was false statements about his gym shoes as well. Uh, they said that Kendrick was reaching in the, reaching over in the match to re, to re, retrieve his shoes. They say he stored his shoes in the gym mat. <clears throat> Our point of view is, if he stored his shoes in the gym mat, how did one shoe end up in the mat and one shoe end up somewhere else? Mm-hmm. That was another false statement. And another false statement, they, they, they said the shoe that he was reaching to receive that shoe sitting on top of a, pot, a pool of blood, but there's no shoe, no blood on the shoe anywhere. Mm-hmm. So how, if Kendrick was bleeding from his nose, ears, and mouth like they say he was, and the blood dripped down and he is in a downward position, 
uh, how can if the shoe right right directly below him? How how can that happen when there's no blood anywhere on the shoe? There's no blood splatters anywhere on the floor. Just a pool of blood. Mm. If Kendrick would stay there overnight the way they all did overnight the way they say he did, the blood is just too fresh. The blood did not gel of, of anything. The blood is not even the circle of the blood is not even consistent with the map. Mm. So you are asking for a jury trial in this case. Tell us why you want to do that. Because a jury, if anyone, anyone can look at this case, mm-hmm. anyone can look at these pictures. It ain't no way that anybody, the pictures alone, there's no way anybody can look at these pictures and say, hey, he died inside this map. He died the way they say he died. Because the pictures tell a different story. So you're targeting the GBI and Lowndes uh, County Sheriff for damages in this lawsuit. Why? Why are you doing that? Because they, you, we got to help. We got to hold people accountable for their actions, and their action was wrong in this case. So Kendrick would have a birth anniversary. It would be his birthday coming up on October 10th. Yes. Okay. I've seen pictures of Kendrick, as many of us have. But tell us, who was he and what was he like? Kendrick, uh, Kendrick was, you know, Kendrick was someone, uh, he was the, the, the excitement of, of the house, you know. Mm-hmm. Kendrick, uh, out of all my kids, uh, Kendrick, you know, he wanted to, you know, Kendrick wanted to follow me every footstep. That, that, that I went, uh-huh. and me and Kendrick, anybody, anybody in the family could tell you how close that me and Kendrick was. Uh, you know, Kendrick was, was an excitement to not only me to everybody in the house. Uh, it's never, never was a dub moment around Kendrick. Uh, Kendrick always was a child that wanted to be somebody, wanted to go somewhere in life. Uh, he just was, you know, he liked the. Uh, he liked to he liked to prove you know that he was just good athlete you know every time I come home you know I got stories and stories and stories about you know what he done uh, and, and whatever sports he was playing at that time uh, you know Kendrick just was you know he, he just was everybody liked him he just was a fun uh, just was just a fun guy he, he take answers when he riding the truck with me mm-hmm. you know everywhere I go man just just. It's, it, when he was at a real young age, mm-hmm. everywhere that we ever went inside my truck, no matter what state I went to in my truck, and he always get a compliment. I tell my all the time, and I used to like to hear him brag on that. You know, he's like, "Yeah, did I tell you? Did I tell you? <laughs> you know, I look good. You know, I told you I look good. You, you ain't look as good as me when I was little or you was my age. <laughs> you know, I, I miss those days. You know." <laughs> That sounds like a 17-year-old. <laughs> that sounds just like a 17-year-old. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Did he ever tell you what he wanted to do when he grew up? His goal was, his goal was, uh, his goal was play football. That, that, that was his goal, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, and just, you know, at, 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 at that age, I, I remember, I recall him talking. I, I was, I, I woke up one morning. He, he said, hey, where are you going to go? I said, man, I'm going to go, uh, uh, to go wash my car. Mm-hmm. 
he, he every every morning if he hear me rumbling in the house, he gonna wake up. <laughs> and as I I can, I can walk by the room, he'll say, "Hey, where you going?" And I tell him where I'm going. He 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 jumped right up. I don't no matter where I'm going, he jumped right up. And I'm he's I'm going. And we ride. He said, oh, "Daddy," he said, "Uh, what college do you think I should go to?" And I should always tell him. I say, "Son, I'm gonna let you make that decision. Uh, whatever make you happy." I want you to be happy. I don't want to make those kind of decisions for you. You make your own decisions where you want to go, and I I will support you wherever you go. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, he, he was he it was his you know it was his goal to go, you know go to go to college and, and end up in the NFL. You know, that was him. And this is why you all continue to fight uh, for justice, is what I imagine. Why we continue to fight for uh, push for what what is right. Mm-hmm. It's because Kendrick was our son. If we don't fight for Kendrick and the rights for Kendrick, when he can't do it himself, no one else will. Kenneth Johnson is the father of the late Kendrick Johnson. We'd like to thank you so much and know that uh, my prayers continue to be with you and your and your wife, Jacqueline, as you uh, continue to go through this process. All right. Thank you. GPB has reached out to the Georgia Bureau of Investigations and Lowndes County Sheriff for a comment on the new lawsuit. The GBI responded, quote, the GBI Medical Examiner's Office conducted a thorough autopsy on this case. The case is closed and we stand behind our original findings. No comment yet from the Lowndes County Sheriff's Office. V-Day is a global activist movement to end violence against all women, girls and the earth. V-Day believes that when art and activism come together, they have the power to transform systems and change culture. That movement is celebrating 25 years. The movement was founded by V, formerly known as Eve Ensler, activist and author of The Vagina Monologues. A conversation with V, coming up. Welcome back to Georgia in Play. I'm Leah Fleming. This weekend, V, formerly known as Eve Ensler, the Tony Award-winning, best-selling author of The Vagina Monologues and the new book, Reckoning, is hosting an evening of reckoning and rising at the Carter Center in Atlanta. This is a moment to mark the 25th anniversary of the V-Day movement to end violence against women, gender-expansive people, and the earth. V-Day believes that when art and activism come together, they have the power to transform systems and change culture. And just this note, for the next couple of minutes, we are going to talk about sexual assault. V joins us now to talk. Hi, V. Hi, how are you? Oh, very well. Now, V, you changed your name. Why did you do that? Well, um, I wrote a book in 2019 called The Apology. Mm -hmm where I essentially climbed into my father and decided that I was going to have him write me the apology he had never written me when he was alive about abusing me both sexually and physically. And I, it was a very profound experience. And I 
really learned a lot about my father because he really, he's, you know, he's an ancestor and he came and spoke through me and explained a lot to me about what had happened. And it was a very painful experience, but I wrote everything I needed to hear and I cleaned up my relationship with him. And when it was over, I realized that he wasn't a person who was for me. And I wanted a name that was my name, that was a name that I chose that was a positive name that felt like my freedom name. So V is that name. Oh, freedom name. I love that. I love that. Um, and you did write this book. Um, your father actually never uh, apologized or acknowledged what uh, he had done to you, but you went ahead and did this anyway. Um, and, and I know you've spoken about the healing um, of that, and I'm wondering if you'll share more because there are so many people for whom an apology never came and never will come or an acknowledgement. I think, you know, in the book, I say this book is dedicated to all the women still waiting for an apology, which is probably most of the planet. Mm -hmm. um, and I think one of the things I learned in that book is that one of the things keeping patriarchy, keeping racism, keeping all these forms that undermine people in its place is the non-apology, the refusal to acknowledge, reckon with, or admit our histories, even say that the, gaslighting people into making them feel crazy for saying they ever happened. And I think for me, um, that book was so important because even if I said that I would, if I was raging at my father or um, I had all kinds of feelings about my my father to prove to him that I wasn't who he said I was. I was still living my father's narrative, mm -hmm. right? I was still in his story. And when I wrote this book, I finished his story. I'm no longer in his story. I completed it. I, I, I went to the heart of it. I went to the core of it. I went inside that wound. And I, I learned that the wound is a portal. And if you go through it, there is freedom on the other side. And I think one of the things we spend our lives doing is waiting for apologies, mm -hmm. waiting for someone to come and acknowledge our hurt, waiting for someone to say, I see your wound. I, And often I would say they don't come. But wonderful things have happened since that book was published. I hear that many therapists are using it now, helping patients write their own apologies to themselves at City of Joy. We're using it for women who have been abused by perpetrators who they will never see to write their apologies. And it's a very profound, liberating experience. Mm. Yeah. You are um, a co-founder of the City of Joy. You just mentioned that this is a center for women survivors of violence in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. What have you been, uh, you all have been able to uh, accomplish uh, through this center? Well, it's 10 years old now. We started this together, Dr. Denis McQuaggay, who is a Nobel Peace Prize winner and who just announced yesterday that he's going to run for president of the Congo. And Christine Schuler Describer, who is an extraordinary leader activist in the in the DRC. And I had been going there for quite some time. Um, I had been invited by Dr. McQuaggy to come and and report and support the work they were doing. And we all decided 10 years ago that we needed to do something more. So we spent time listening to women, asking them what they wanted. And what they wanted more than anything was a sanctuary for healing, a revolutionary center where they could feel safe, where they could heal, and where they could essentially turn their pain to power. And 10 years ago, we opened it. 
every six months, we host 90 girls from 14 to 34. They learn their rights. They go through amazing group therapy. They are fed. They are nurtured. They are healed. They learn permaculture. They learn all kinds of things. And after six months, there is just a radical reemergence of young women. And they go from being victims to survivors to leaders. They go back to their communities. They become very important people in their communities. They start collectives. They become healers. They become doctors. They go back to school and they send other women so they can go through the same process they underwent. I think in some ways, um, City of Joy is the, it's just the most beautiful, holy project I've seen on this planet. It is filled with joy mm. and dancing and celebration and theater and art and gorgeous paniers. And when women come, they are broken. They are desolate. They have been through some of the worst atrocities. And when they leave, they are these blossomed flowers mm. that um, have emerged into the world. Mm. So you are marking 25 years. This is such a powerful milestone moment, 25 years, to really stop yeah. and look back and then look ahead. And I'm wondering, what are you feeling in this moment uh, as you mark the 25th anniversary of V-Day? old. <laughs> you know, I feel like it has been a long, amazing, intense, hardworking, beautiful road. You know, um, if I'd ever thought 25 years ago that A, anyone would come to the vagina monologues, let alone not shoot me, it would have been, you know, this is all beyond my imagination that, you know, I always say it's the little vagina that could. It's kind of spurred so much. Mm -hmm. But I think one of the things that I am so moved about is to see the movement we've built around the world, to see the sisterhood, to see the network. I mean, you know, V-Day birthed One Billion Rising, which is a global movement. You know, it's a campaign using dance and art, you know, and that happened 10 years ago. And we thought it was going to be one year. And now we're in our 10th year. And it's in close to 200 countries where women rise everywhere in the world. We have 70 coordinators around the world who work. We have a true global sisterhood with a few men where women are totally supporting each other, totally with each other in the deepest solidarity, totally changing their communities on a grassroots le level. Everything is led by the communities. No one determines anything from outside. And it's it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And I think to be part of this, to know that I have sisters in the Philippines and all over Africa and all over Asia and Latin America and Europe, and to know that we're we're always working to have each other's backs when one, like if something's happening in Afghanistan, we move and we support Afghanistan. If something happens over here, we, and I think that's been a profound lesson in what it means to be in solidarity, what it means to stand up for other people as you're standing up for yourself and, mm -hmm. and to keep learning those lessons because that's what really changes the world. V is the Tony Award-winning, best-selling author of The Vagina Monologues and the new book, Reckoning. Thank you so much, V, and congratulations on all of your success. Thank you, and I hope everyone will come out. It's going to be a gorgeous evening. So many of us know about tight budgets. Everything costs more these days, and we seem to need more of everything. 
For black women, the gap between a decent paycheck and making ends meet has historically been larger than any other population. That is why an organization called In Her Hands is providing an average of about $850 per month for 24 months to 650 women in three communities in Georgia. Over the past year, several women have been a part of the program. GPB's Amanda Andrews has been reporting on the Guaranteed Income Program, and she joins us in studio now. Hey, Amanda. Hey, how are you? Good, good, good. So what is this In Her Hands program? Right. So the In Her Hands program was started by the Georgia Resilience and Opportunity Fund uh, as an opportunity for black women to get guaranteed Monthly payments, essentially, Uh, the women have to be under a certain income threshold, which is 200 percent of the federal poverty line. So for a family of four, that's around like fifty six thousand dollars. So if you meet the income threshold, if you're a black woman who lives in one of the neighborhoods they've selected for this program, then you're eligible to apply. And um, if you're accepted, then you get the monthly cash payments. Uh, And this is open to uh, black women all over Georgia. So this is open to black women who live in one of the neighborhoods that this program is taking place in. So that's Old Fourth Ward. That's College Park more recently um, in southwest Georgia. That's Clay, Randolph, Terrell counties, one of the county clusters they're focusing on. Um, And more recently, uh, a new project was started off in two new uh, Atlanta neighborhoods who will be able to access this. But you have to live in one of the neighborhoods. So you have speak you have spoken with some of the women who have been able to be a part of this program uh, over the last year and have received these payments. Um, tell us some of the stories that stick out for you. Yes. So these women, um, you know, the one of the just through lines of talking to these women is that it's it's been a gift for everyone in general. You know, it's played out in people's lives in different ways, but across the board, people are. Um, grateful to have this income coming in, even if it's not enough to turn their whole life around. So for one woman I spoke to in uh, Old Fourth Ward, her name is uh, C. Harper, and this really helped her turn around her whole career trajectory. I basically took a job that was less pay because I had the in her hands money I can depend on, but the end result was I was able to get a better job. So I almost don't have to depend on it as much as I did when I first started the program. She feels like she can serve her community now better, um, that she's able to uh, be a teacher here. This money for her has gone strictly towards um, her uh, career and towards her housing. Uh, Prior to this uh, monthly payment, she was, you know, kind of couch surfing, living with friends. And now she's able to sustain her own, uh, sustain herself and her own apartment um, for herself and for her children. So that's really been a major turnaround uh, for her life. And for other participants, another woman that I spoke to, her name's Tamika Royal, you know, these payments um, weren't able to really go towards, you know, major life developments for her uh, because she had so many things going on in her life uh, before this program kicked off. Um, You know, she was uh, attacked on the streets uh, by a homeless man. She had been in, in a car accident And so, you know, she had a lot of medical bills, a lot of uh, legal fees that she was dealing with. Mm. And so this um, for her, these payments were going strictly towards uh, her car and just making sure that she still had a car. And so um, even with all of that, you know, just being able to keep up with bills, being able to 
um, stay in her apartment. Um, that has been really significant for her. I mean, some days, some days I don't even eat. But um, my bills are paid. And don't nobody know. So now the program is expanding uh, from the old Fourth Ward. It's going to, as you said, um, it's going to go into these other communities. Can we expect to hear more stories? What do you think is going to be happening now? Right. So across the board, you know, people are able to save money. You know, this is going to child care. This is going towards jobs, um, you know, this is going towards housing. And so that's really, um, I think what we're going to see is what the program was intended to do, which is not necessarily set people up to become wealthy, but set people up to take care of themselves without having to go towards, you know, predatory loans, you know, high interest loans that a lot of um, people who are, are struggling with, with low income have to go towards. Um, so these people are able to kind of pay for themselves, you know, set up emergency funds uh, and, and take care of themselves and the community. You know, uh, the director... Uh, Hope Wallensack of the Georgia Resilience Opportunity Fund, she said that, you know, that's one of the reasons that they chose to make this woman, this program. That's one of the reasons they chose to make this program exclusive to black women is because black women's work is historically undervalued. And so by pouring into black women in the community, you see benefits for everybody in the community, you know, children, men, other people. So that's um, that's what we're expecting to see in this program is just the women taking care of themselves and the community benefiting. All right. All right. Amanda Andrews is a reporter for GPB who has been covering the story about guaranteed income for black women. Thank you so much. Amanda. Thank you for having me. The Atlanta Braves are on fire. When we come back, we're going to take you out to the ball game with GPB's Peter Biello. He has been to the games and will bring us the latest on what we can expect from the Atlanta Braves as they head into the playoffs. Stay tuned. This is Georgia in Play. Talk a little baseball now. Smith. The 0-2. Left side, Swanson. To first. The Browns are world champions. November 2nd, 2021. That is the moment that the Atlanta Braves won the World Series. So can they do it again? The Atlanta Braves are wrapping up a record-filled season as they break 100 wins for the second season in a row. They are guaranteed a spot in the National League Division Series. GPB's Peter Biello has been covering the games, and he joins us now to talk. Peter? Hey, Leah. All right, so the Braves broke 100 wins of 162 games for the second season in a row. How would you describe that? And this past season, you have been attending the game. So. I've been going to the games, and... If I had to pick one word, I'd say it was fun, right? This has been a fun season. It's been, it's fun to watch an extraordinarily good team, and that's what we've got this year. Mm-hmm. Offensively, all season, the Braves have been having big first innings in particular, just jumping out in front right away. Uh, they've scored a franchise record 146 runs 
in the first innings in these games this season, which is the most by any club within a single season since the Cardinals with 147 23 years ago. Um, other stats of note, you know, the Braves finished the regular season with a 501 slugging percentage, which is the highest for any team in MLB history. The Braves also led the majors in hits, runs, home runs, RBIs, batting average, and on-base percentage. So a lot, lot of good things happening on the field this year. Uh, yes, more than 100 games. They won 104 regular season games this season. That's tied for second most in franchise history within a single season. Also happened in 1993. Uh, the 1998 club won 106 games, but that year they did not make it to the World Series. Hoping for a different outcome this year. Yes, yes. <laughs> The Braves will play in the National League Division Series, but I understand that there are some concerns about pitchers. Yes, pitching has been less than ideal lately. Max Fried was put on the injured list with the blister. Unclear if he'll be ready to start the Division Series. Charlie Morton will sit out the Division Series. He had some pain in his right index finger. Both of these are not uncommon for pitchers injury-wise, and when those two guys are on, they are on. So, They just need to get healthy. Then there's Bryce Elder. He's a rookie known for being a ground ball hitter. He throws pitches that essentially put the ball in play, but in ways that the Braves defense can handle. And lately, uh, he's been throwing a lot of walks, which have translated into losses, uh, into runs that the Braves really couldn't afford. Um, That's something he's working on. So Bryce Elder needs to do a better job of finding the strike zone. Um, The backbone of the pitching staff this year has been Spencer Strider, a.k.a. Mustache Man, a.k.a. The Quad Father. If you want to know why, just do a Google image search. Uh, He's got a fastball that touches 100 miles an hour. He's got good discipline, good control. He's won 20 games this year, the most in the majors. Uh, he's led the majors in strikeouts with 281, and that is also a franchise record. He, he, he beat John Smoltz's 1996 record for strikeouts in a single season, and he's a candidate for the Cy Young Award, baseball's top award for pitchers. So those are the starters. Uh, the relief pitchers have been struggling a bit, too. A.J. Minter has more losses than wins, and Raysel Iglesias has been doing pretty well, though. Uh, Bottom line is that pitching uh, doesn't have the depth that the offense has, so offense is really going to have to come through. So one name on the roster that has made headlines time after time, even us bandwagon fans, we know about Ronald Acuna Jr. He is the only player to have hit 40 home runs while stealing 70 bases in the same season. What does his future look like in the postseason, and how will Braves fans remember his performance? Yeah, what an amazing uh, feat he's accomplished. Uh, the Braves will remember his performance as as one they'll tell their children about. You know, you've only seen five players in Major League history, including Acuna, hit uh, hit the forty forty mark, forty homers and forty stolen bases. So he's had uh, forty homers, more than forty homers, and seventy three stolen bases, leading the majors this season. So. Fans will remember this uh, for the rest of their lives, unless he does it again, in which case that <laughs> that memory will erase this one. But um, in in the postseason, I mean, he's going to deliver. I think he'll deliver the way he's delivered throughout the season. I mean, he's been a leadoff hitter. He's reliably getting on base. Uh, it's not always a home run. He's 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 you know he can be relied upon for for singles and doubles and and getting on base when it, when it's needed. And then Ozzy Albies, Matt Olson, uh, Austin Riley will be there to drive him in. So I think, you know, he's healthy. So there's no reason to believe he won't continue this kind of uh, 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 power at the plate. On the business end, the Braves are breaking records as well. They have announced ticket sales for the division series are sold out earlier this season. 
uh, their themed Outcast Night. Uh, that was the third most attended game in Truist Park history. What is the energy like in the stadium this season? Man, that Outcast Night, just got to say, that that was wonderful. But yeah, the, when I think of the energy, okay, I think of this one game back in June. Uh, they were playing the Mets, which, of course, if you're a Braves fan, got to hate the Mets with a, a passion that rivals no other passion in life. Um, and and then it was it was extra innings, right? Uh, into the 10th inning, and Ozzie Albies hits this walk-off homer. And that just also happened to be the night where they had a few Braves legends in the broadcast booth. They were like four of them, uh, Jeff Francoeur, Chipper Jones, whose first name is Lawrence, that, that's important, um, and, and John Smoltz and Tom Glavin. And when Ozzie hit that home run, Jeff Francoeur just shouted out, poor Larry a crown. Like, it was one of those broadcast moments where just the joy is channeled into one four-word sentence. Mm. And from then on, poor Larry a crown has become a thing. Like, Truist Park actually had a night where they gave, like, a free Crown Royal drink to anyone who happened to be named Larry. (laughs) (laughs) So that's, when you talk about energy, like, that's that's the vibe Mm. happening at Truist Park. Poor Larry a crown. (laughs) There are even t-shirts, poor Larry a crown. <laughs> oh goodness. All right. So in your opinion, what can we expect from the Braves this postseason? Are they going to continue? I, I mean, I'm gonna to have to say, of course, yes, right? Mm-hmm. But I am more concerned about the the facing the American League in the World Series than I am about the National League because the Braves have a lot of experience playing National League teams this year. They've done very well against the Phillies. They've done well against the Marlins. They've done surprisingly well against uh, the Dodgers and erstwhile Brave Freddie Freeman. Uh, so um, if I were to make a prediction, I would say the Braves would face the Dodgers in the National League Championship Series and do pretty well there. It's um, If they end up facing the Orioles in the World Series... We'll see how that goes. They beat them two out of three times uh, this season. Uh, So they'll have to throw their best pitching at them, meaning Strider, right? Strider's going to have to do some starts, and offense is going to have to be racking up the runs like they've been doing in first innings all season. Mm -hmm. So that's my prediction. Let's let's see what happens. Okay. Well, we will be watching. Peter Biello hosts GPB's All Things Considered and the Georgia Today podcast. Thank you so much, Peter. Thank you, Leah. All right, if baseball is not your thing, maybe football is. This weekend, college football will bring out the fans and, of course, the bands. While you may check out the SEC League, lots of people are tuning into the SEAC Conference, the Southern Intercollegiate Athletic Conference. That is where several HBCU teams play. One of the teams, the Maroon Tigers of Morehouse College, have a new coach this season, and I spoke with Coach Gerard Wilcher recently. Okay, so I first want to ask you um, to talk about this full circle moment of you coming back to your alma mater to coach. You actually played for Morehouse. Yeah, so I actually played and I coached at Morehouse. My first three years of my coaching career was at Morehouse. So like like I always say, it's fantastic. It's amazing to be back on campus because I really, except for a handful of times over the last 25 years, I haven't come on campus. And usually when I do come on campus, I come and see the track coach, the legendary track coach, Willie Hill, uh, because he was my defensive coordinator in college. But I've never been able to get back during the season. Every year, people like you coming to homecoming, 
And I'm like, I'm kind of working right now. Like, no, I can't get back. So, um, but, but it's, it's great to be back. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, tell us about your playing days when you play, you did play at Morehouse, didn't you? Yes. Yes. So I played defensive back and uh, I'm from the South side of Chicago, went to all boys Catholic high school. And, and when I came down here, you know, I thought I could run a little bit. So I played corner for about two years. And I think, Going into my junior year, we brought in uh, three guys from, from I think one was from Mount Bayou, Mississippi, and two was from Greenwood, Mississippi. Mm-hmm. And then I moved to safety because I was like, ooh, I don't run like them. Like, <laughs> I can run, but not like that. You know what I mean? So, um, you know, so I, I learned how to play safety and I learned how to play nickel. So I probably had an early introduction into coaching and I didn't even know it because I figured out quickly that if you learn how to play every position, they can't take you off the field. Ah, very smart. Very smart. Yeah. So I am wondering, how are you turning around uh, last year's season? Last year, it was you were one and nine. Uh, and how are you making this? A, how are you going to make it a winning season? You all have been playing uh, this season so far. Yeah, yeah. So I tell everybody, when you take over a program who hasn't had much success, um, Everybody assumes that when you add the new coach, it's like hot water to oatmeal and stir. Like, that's not how it works, right? This thing is like turning a battleship around in the middle of the ocean. It's going to take some time. There's some cultural changes. There's some structural changes. And sometimes culture and structural are with the team. Sometimes it's the people around the team. Like, there's a lot of things that go into this. So we're working on on repairing and fixing all of that and, and just getting caught up to speed. Um, but you know, the kids have been fantastic. Um, they're working at it, whatever I ask them to do, they try and do. Um, we just have to keep, keep grinding. And, and as expression goes, we just keep chopping wood till we get there. Until you, yes. Until you get there. So, you know, um, HBCU football, it's, it's different than when you watch a UGA game. There's there's just a, a different dynamic there. The the crowd is uh, different. I'm wondering, uh, you play in the SEAC League. What makes that league so special, the SEAC? Um, what makes it so special? Well, you know, Tuskegee, uh, Morehouse, mm-hmm. um, you know, a long time ago was Alabama A&M was in the league and way back when Florida A&M was in the league. But there's just some historical teams that get to go play Albany State, Fort Valley, Savannah State. Um, now Central State is in the league. Edward Waters is in the league. So it's just some historical places that, that are part of the league that makes it special. And, and being Morehouse, we have a name. So everybody wants us to be in a classic. Um, so for instance, we've already been in two classics. We have a third one coming up in two weeks. Um, so, you know, it, it's crazy because we haven't even played at home yet. We've been on the road for four weeks and we got two more weeks to go. So that, that is nuts. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. You know, I, um, I realized that you have actually worked with some NFL teams and as I was doing some research on you. There are only just a just a handful of African Americans that have had the position of head coach in the NFL, and I, I want to get your thoughts on that. Um, you certainly are an African American coach, um, you know, in college. But I'm wondering what you think about that, and and where is the disconnect? Because certainly there are so many talented African American men that can coach in the NFL. 
Well, I think the disconnect comes in a couple of different places. One of those being just sheer access. Um, and a lot of times your coordinators become head coaches. So we have to get black men to become coordinators first. And when we talk about coordinators, usually the coordinators come, if you track most of the coordinators, they were quarterbacks, sometimes offensive linemen. On the defensive side, usually they played middle linebacker or, or safety. So, and then they had the chance to coach those positions. So you have to be able to come from one of those positions. Usually um, when you take my role, you know, I, I played in the secondary, coached all over the secondary. Sometimes the role is a little bit longer because I wasn't in one of the mainstay positions. And then a lot of times too, you have to come from the blue bloods to get a head coaching job. Now, what people don't know is like Mike Tomlin did a tremendous job, but you know, way back when, when Mike Tomlin interviewed, he wasn't supposed to get the job. Mike was actually a charity interview and he killed the interview. And thus he got the job. But oftentimes, like I'll be honest with you, I've been asked in my career, people have asked me, say, Hey coach, uh, can you send us your resume? Mm -hmm. I'm like, yeah, wow. I'm gonna get a shot at this job. I'm like, are you going to interview me? They was like, no, we just need a minority candidate's resume. So then I'm like, no, I'm not sending you my resume. You know what I mean? And people get mad at me. And I'm like, why would I do that? You know, one time I was even like, hey, I'll play the game, but you got to call my head coach and tell him you want to interview me. So at least I can go back to him and at least get a promotion, get a raise out the deal. And they're like, no, we're not interested in do that. They was like, you don't want to help us out? And I'm like, you don't want to help me out? Right. Like, you know, it has to be some give and take. So it's so much that goes into it. Um, but, you know, it just starts with pure access. Now, where do you see your career going? Are you going to continue to stay on uh, with Morehouse? Would you ever consider, uh, you know, trying to coach uh, in the NFL? Where do you see your career going? Well, let me say this. I've never really thought about coaching NFL, although I do have a very NFL-ish style. Mm -hmm. um, I've never really thought about it. Um, you know, love Morehouse. I got to get these guys to win. I got to get this thing turned around. I know what it could possibly be. You know, um, there's no reason we shouldn't be like when I was at Lehigh or Cornell, you know, some of the high academic institutions that win. Um, is There's no reason we can't be like that. So that's my goal. I got to get us there. But I'll be honest with you. One thing I've always said in, in my career that, you know, if I get that phone call and it's three, four times what I make now, I got to go, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and usually what happened is my wife should be like, yeah, we, we just took a new job. Uh, I'm waiting on you wherever that job is, you know. So, again, like, you know, somebody going to pay me three, four times what I make now. I have to strongly consider, consider mm -hmm. making that move. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for talking with us about your career and also about Morehouse. And uh, we appreciate you, Coach. Thank you. Thank you. As we push through race and culture wars in this country, music is helping many of us find a safe space to just be together. I'm going to share a new album just ahead on George N. Play.
As our country continues to battle its way through race and culture wars, we are bringing you the universal language of music to close out today's show. The Black Legacy Project is a multiracial musical celebration to advance racial solidarity, equity, and belonging. Under the leadership of Trey Carlisle and Todd Mack, the Atlanta-based group has traveled the country bringing together black and white artists to record present-day interpretations of songs that are central to the black American experience. Well, now comes the album. 41 shots And we'll take that ride Cross the bloody river To the other side 41 shots just heard American Skin, 41 Shots, Sundown Town, Lift Every Voice and Sing, and We Shall Overcome, all available on the new album on iTunes or wherever you get your music. Those songs are from the Black Legacy Project, which is a part of the nonprofit Music in Common, which is based in Atlanta. A touring band is bringing that music to audiences all over the country. And that's our show for today. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a note to askgip at gpb.org. You can listen to the show on the GPB app. Our producers are Natalie Mendenhall and Chase McGee. Special thanks to Mary Lynn Ryan, our Vice President of News. Victoria Evans-Cash and Buddha Lamb are our engineers. And I'm Leah Fleming. From all of us here at Georgia Public Broadcasting, we wish you well. Talk to you next week.